Welcome to another episode of the Bridging Theology podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian life. I'm Dr. Besta Bell, a member of the Bridging Theology hosting team, along with Drs. Claudia Herrera Montero, John Stovell, Kevin Hill, and Ryan Reed. And I'm Dr. Candace Smith. Today, I'm pleased to have with us Dr. Esau McCauley. Esau is an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, and a theologian in residence at Progressive Baptist Church, a historically Black congregation in Chicago. His first book entitled Sharing the Son's Inheritance was published by TNT Clark in 2019. And his second book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope, was published by IVP Academic in 2020. It's won numerous awards, including Christianity Today's Book of the Year. His most recent work was a children's book entitled Josie Johnson's Hair and the Holy Spirit for IVP Kids. He is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. His writings have also appeared in places such as The Atlantic, Washington Post, and Christianity Today. He is married to Mandy, a pediatrician and a Navy reservist. Together, they have four wonderful children. There, there, there's one thing, though, because this is like, oh, yeah. as of two days ago, I have another book. So, <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> well, tell us, tell us what, your, what the book is. It, it's, it's a book on Lent. So I'm assuming that, wait, this comes out in January, right? Or February. Yeah. Uh-huh. So they'll be on the verge of Lent. Um, so I just put out a book on a, a small 100-page introduction to the season of Lent. You can find nice. that if you Google Esau McCauley and Lent. So I did have those books until two days ago. So unless you were like really hot <laughs> on the Google, can I call you Candace? Candace you, yes, unless you, you can call Unless you were really in those Google streets, you wouldn't have known that that that, that um, bio. It's probably even outdated on my website. So um, no oh. no shade to you at all. Awesome. Okay. Awesome. Well, we're happy to we're happy to talk about your recent, more recent book too. Uh, that's amazing. Well, this conversation, and um, we will have three sections or movements. We're going to get begin by talking about Esau's scholarship, and then we're going to explore how this relates to the Christian Church and the and Christian life. And lastly, we're gonna we're going to talk a little bit about what we call marginalia. Um, the sometimes marginalia is the part that is outside of our academic lives or sometimes treated as separate. But from our perspective, we believe that these aspects of our lives inform who we are as scholars and who we are as people in important ways. So we look forward to asking some of those fun questions. We're going to start with asking you a really simple question. Tell us something about yourself most people wouldn't know. Um, Something most people wouldn't know. Oh my goodness. I love um science fiction and fantasy literature. Nice. So Beth is like in heaven right now. I'm not going to list or name any people. But I'm just gonna say when I'm not doing biblical studies, I'm reading about something that takes place in an alternative timeline, universe, <laughs> or planet. It's probably what I would say. So that that's that's that is that is most people don't know <laughs> uh, i just was my birthday this week when we're recording and um i uh i said what i wanted to do for my birthday was go to a sci-fi fantasy shop and like just look at all the sci-fi fantasy stuff and I, I think we spent like an hour and a half just walking along like aisles of books and i got like a stack <laughs> so i'm with you man <laughs> yeah 
Nice, nice. So as we mentioned, our recording is happening in November. And I know in the U.S., that's a month associated with gratitude and Thanksgiving. So can you share a couple things that you're grateful for? I mean, I'm going to be like, uh, I guess, stereotypical. I'm grateful for my family. My, I, I had a, a great mom who um, invested a lot in me and my brothers and sisters. I'm grateful for my siblings. Um, I'm grateful for my my wonderful wife. She's a pediatrician. Um, and uh, I'm grateful for my four kids. And oh, we just got a dog. I'm grateful for my dog, Scotty. I got to say the kids' names because if I don't say their names, they're going to say, why you mentioned the dog and not me? Right. <laughs> Luke, Peter, Miriam, and Claire, I love y'all too. So um, those those are things I'm grateful for. That's awesome. I've been seeing that adorable dog on Facebook. All your like office yeah. with the cute dog pictures. It's been yeah, that's, that's that's my lane. <laughs> he normally sits in my lap. He'll sit in my lap while I, while I do work. So, Or then he'll just nice. sit right beside me. He He is the perfect... He's the perfect dog, but that's a question for another. You don't, you don't want, you want to turn into the dog podcast. So, I'll, I'll <laughs> well, thanks so much for sharing that with us. Um, we're going to transition to some questions about your scholarship and also how you see your vocation as a scholar. Um, first, I just want to hear a little bit about how you became a New Testament scholar. Was it something you wanted to do? Did you know you wanted to do that from a young age? When did you come to that in your life? Man, I'm still trying to figure out if I'm a New Testament scholar. So that's a really interesting question. Um, so growing up, I grew up in the in the Black Baptist Church, and there wasn't really a category for Bible scholars. So if you liked the Bible, you became a pastor. And so um, I went to seminary because I wanted to go into pastoral ministry. And um, during the course of my late my late college and early um, seminary, I I fell in love with a a wonderful young lady who was also in the military. And so once she, once we got married and we had to move around a lot, you couldn't, you can't be a pastor as you move around. Like it's impossible. Oh, um, yeah. And so that kind of took me away from pastoral ministry. And at one point we thought we were going to do missionary work overseas. And so I didn't want to be a pastor. I felt like people can pastor their own people better. And I remember mm. reading on the internet that there weren't a lot of, um, um, people with PhDs who taught on the mission field. And mm-hmm. so um, I, and people would say, well, no, you can just go over with an MDF. I was like, no, I was trained by somebody with a PhD. I want to get a PhD. So I initially thought that I would be, I would be a Bible professor in Uganda. That was my initial plan mm-hmm. when I went to seminary. So I really didn't plan to go to seminary um, until my, um, sorry, the little graduate studies until my wife, um, at the time, felt a strong call to do medical missionary work. And I had to find something to do while she was over there doing medical work. So I got a PhD. So I know it's rare to slide into biblical studies as a, um, as the, oh, you would call it secondary spouse or whatever you want to call it. That's what I was. I was looking for something to do on the mission field. Now, obviously, there's tons of stuff you could have decided to do. And so I've had a lifelong interest in biblical interpretation and learning to read the Bible well. So maybe you can say subconsciously, I'd always wanted to do it. But the proximate reason was I wanted to teach New Testament on the mission field. And when that mm-hmm. fell through, I had to find a job. And I found a job teaching here in the States <laughs> as, my fall, as my fallback career. Um, so that's how I ended up as a New Testament scholar in America. Wow. That may explain why I spent half of my time not doing New Testament scholarship. <laughs> Am I right? 
<laughs> oh, I was thinking that explains your like depth and breadth, but you know, that's my spin. <laughs> there we go. Spin it. I, I'm, I'm happy for positive spin. Yes, it's an amazing story. And I think that that really kind of leads to our next question. We've looked at how you have so many different like, like intersectional identities. So you write for the church, you write for the academy and even for the public. Yeah. Um, and as a practical theologian, I love that. <laughs> but how do you see your vocation as a scholar as related to all of these identities? Yeah, in I guess, like I said, my story is way more meandering. I remember there, there's a story that I think is really important to help you understand, like, a couple of things. One is I was in, I was working on my PhD in 2013 and 2016, and then my PhD abroad at the um, at the University of St. Andrews. And if you remember anything about America in 2015, coming into what became the 2016 election, um, it was a time of racial upheaval. And it wasn't the first one, but I remember at the time working on a really obscure, you talked about it, um, dissertation on Galatians and thinking nobody who's suffering right now in America is ever going to read this dissertation. Hmm. And then shortly after, and I said, my mama ain't going to read it and she loved me. And so part of me said, I want to write something that my mom would read. Mm -hmm. Um, But beyond that, I remember this very clearly. They did the job stuff. I'm, by the way, if you're an academic, don't follow this advice. I'm going to tell you what I did. So this is, don't do this, but I'm going to tell you what happened. Um, <laughs> they they were saying, do you know how they give you how, it? you go to these workshops on how to get jobs and how to do job interviews. And they had someone who claimed we stood up there and he was like, okay, when you do, when you are first in the academy, put your head down, don't say anything, don't do anything on social media, don't write anything controversial, keep your head down get a job, get tenure. And then it, you get a tenure, you get tenure, you can kind of do what you want. And I remember doing the math because I was like, um, I think it was like 35, 36 at the time. And it's funny because I'm coming up for tenure right now. I said, well, hold on. By the time I finish this PhD process and get tenure, I'll be 43 years old. That's ha- almost half my life. And I haven't said anything to help black people. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do the opposite. If I don't get a job, I don't get a job. And so I I said, no, that's actually when I got on social media um, and I started being more intentional about writing things that were accessible because I felt like, what's the purpose of me doing this stuff if it doesn't help the community for me? So what became Reading While Black and what became eventually, I never had any idea I'd write for the New York Times. I was on like blogs and stuff, just wrestling with these ideas because I felt like I need to do theology that people could touch. Right. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is like super nuanced for um, like uh, like in the black community. I feel like there is sometimes kind of black exceptionalism mm-hmm. where a black person does something that's really impressive. And we like that you did it like good job. You're the first black person to do this. Mm-hmm. And we let you go and do it. But we just kind of put you on a shelf. Mm-hmm. You are our first black person who's accomplished this. Mm-hmm. And I never thought of myself as an exceptional black person. It's kind of the other black people who are like at the intersection of the culture, like bringing about change. Mm-hmm. The, first, the first kind of form of black black exceptionalism challenges tropes in its own way, right? That mm-hmm. um, people said that black people couldn't do something, and then we did it, and that's mm-hmm. kind of important. And I, I, I think that maybe maybe I'll put when I when I went to seminary and I was first doing my PhD. I was kind of in that black exceptionalism mode. We can do technical scholarship like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Then I kind of said, "What? Well, what does that do for 
us. And so I wanted to write something that would um, directly engage the felt needs and concerns of, in particular, Black Christians, mm-hmm. who I think were in a really, and we still continue to be, in a really rough place in the United States um, during mm-hmm. this particular season. And so that's how I ended up doing the public stuff. And the New York Times and this stuff came later, just kind of by accident. It's not a job you can apply for. It's kind of like someone reached out and said, would you be interested? And I said, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so, you know, that's so, that helps to understand kind of how you ended up in a lot of ways, how you ended up where you are, but also why you're passionate to do the things you do. Mm-hmm. And so, because the next question I have is really around like writing for different audiences. But, you know, yeah. one of the things you've already brought up is like, here's why you do that. Yeah. I'm interested a little bit in like the changing voices in writing. So, you know, yeah. you write your first book, it's a monograph, it's a peer to peer, like kind of voice, right? Yeah. Then you're writing um, Reading While Black, it has a, a different kind of voice. You, yeah. You're working on a kid's book. You did a kid's book. That's another yeah. kind of voice. Um, how do you how do you uh, adjust your voicing as you're writing from different projects? And yeah. also, how do you think about speaking to these different audiences as you're, as you're writing? I tend to think of it more as finding my voice than speaking in different voices. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's maybe that's the difference between um, my first book and my second book. My first book is what I thought people wanted me to do. My second book is what I wanted to do. Hmm. Um, and mm. it really was. The first book, you know, was trying to show that I belonged here. Mm-hmm. And then once I got there, it's like, do I want to stay here and play by these rules? No, not really. And so um, it's really it's funny. I mean, you, you're 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 an um, an OT scholar, and you you might get this. If someone, not that they would, would to do redactional scholars, redactional analysis of reading while black. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you when I wrote the different chapters. It is not the order of the book, mm-hmm. and I felt like I found my voice somewhere in the middle of writing reading while black. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I guess. I guess the way that I put it is I found that I was better at being myself than imitating someone else. Mm. Um, and so in all of my work since reading my black, which is the New York times stuff um, and um, the stuff that y'all will see basically for every, he, inside story for every six months from now to 2024, there's something new coming. So, mm. so, there's like I've been writing stuff for the last two years and people haven't seen them yet and so the first one came out two days ago but basically there there are um kind of intersection of church and culture books coming until 2024 what's coming after that I don't know but there's it's funny because there's like two years of stuff that y'all haven't even seen yet I'm like oh I can't wait for you to see it um and so and it's like the um the New York Times pieces are like um, little teasers that that, that kind mm. of move along until they're like tied. I mean, if you really care, I mean, tiding you over the <laughs> outlets in between now and then. And so, I think that what I would say is, I found out how to be myself. Mm. Um, now, when I when when I I do say that there is a distinction between when I'm writing for a distinctively Christian audience versus a secular audience. Yeah. Um, when I'm writing for a Christian audience, I I try to say. Can, given that you hold these beliefs, here's how these things might want to mm-hmm. um, land in your life. Yeah. When I'm writing for a secular audience, they're not trying to figure out how to live as Christians. Right. And so what I try to do then is to say, 
here's how me being a person of faith, a black person of faith, influences how I see the world. Mm-hmm. And maybe like that angle of vision challenges what you think about, you know, your stereotypes about what Christians believe, boy, it may challenge your own like way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I guess what I want to say is how Christianity um, upsets like simplistic notions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what kinds of, and so I can't tell people, I mean, the, people don't want to be told what to do. Um, because that's not how, you know, those kinds of outlets work, but it's like, here's how my angle of vision gives fresh insight into the things that we see. And even the things we choose to talk about, choose to consider. So, and kids books are incredibly difficult because they're just like, I told, I, I mean, I have one of the things is do they, it's Friday today. There, um, yeah, it's it's just like trying to figure out how to write, um, uh, even something as simple as you have a thousand words, or not even a thousand, mm-hmm. hundred and fifty words that can portray, convey a beginning, middle, and end, and um, uh, and and include a spiritually thick idea, mm-hmm. and normally, when I say on Friday afternoon, I could sometimes write a thousand words. You can never you can write a thousand words on an afternoon on a Friday or something, but it takes a long time. Um, and interestingly enough, the the book that the book that is due that I'm working on now, by the time this comes out, people might even be able to see the the title and the cover. Who knows what's gonna happen? It's a memoir. And mm-hmm. if we're gonna talk about writing in different voices, a memoir is totally different. Yeah. So I guess I'm always figuring out maybe I just have ADHD because my first five <laughs> books will be in five different genres, which is odd. So it'll be monograph, kind of biblical theology, cultural apologetics, um, or cultural engagement, um, kids book, trade theology book on Lent, and memoir. That's, yeah, that might be, someone might need to tell me to focus. (laughs) No, it's part of the gift. It's part of the gift that you are. I mean, actually... Part of what I love about we've been we've been friends for a while, and one part of what I love about our conversations is I I get I get told to stay in one lane a lot, and yeah. I'm in lots of lanes, and um and like people at various times have said like no you can't you can't be both this and that or do this and that like you can't yeah. do that and I'm like why right <laughs> and well, so, hopefully I could be this and that because I think I think that um for some people. Um, our curiosity is our strength and the academy tries to stifle that curiosity and put you in a box. Interestingly enough, um, one of the things that was about, about reading my black is that the first version, one, so many things changed in the beginning. It was about, it was going to be new New Testament interpretation. And I couldn't write the book because I kept wanting to talk about the, um, the old Testament. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I said, can we change it so that I can bring in all of these old Testament passages, even though I'm not an OT scholar? And it said, yes. And I said, okay, thank you. Once that artificial limitation was gone, mm-hmm. and so people will see there's a lot of like Old Testament and New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. And the prophets and the law. And so I'm like all over the place. And I think that may be my strength. I'm not as good, maybe as being focused and technical as people, as other people, but I think that I, I have a scope that might be useful to um, the church in the academy. Right. 
It's it's not might be. It definitely is useful. And I love the piece about finding your voice. Um, and I think it's kind of like the perfect segue. I know since the pandemic, a lot of people are really just kind of concerned with like, who am I? Like, who are we as a community? And I think that that filters over. We've had a little bit of conversation about the academy and how it's set up and some of the conversations within academia is just the disconnect between the academy and the surrounding world. Um, like, are we relevant? Does it, you know, especially with like social media and influencing and all of that. Um, so how do you see the role of higher education, like the importance of that and making that connect? I think that the academy, I, it's, it's, it's it's good to be like free. You know, Beth, well, I can just say what I want to say. I'm feeling free. Maybe y'all call me too late in the afternoon. The academy is broken, a lot, the academy is broken in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Because the stuff that they want you to do to engage culture is not what they value when it comes time for tenure and promotion. Yeah. So all the stuff that you do is relevant. is seen as stuff that you do because you care about it. In other words, and, and and like, I'm not, I have a monogram. So like, don't yell at me about this, but like you're rewarded. It's like the least accessible, you accessible, not you mm-hmm. are, the more you're mm-hmm. rewarded vocationally. And mm-hmm. so they tend to think the Academy in general tends to think of material that is um, engaging, like the, 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 the culture is not sufficiently moving the guild forward to almost just about promotion and tenure. And so we spend all of our time, you know, arguing with 15 other people who share our interest. And then we try to, we try to squeeze relevance into, um, into the nooks and crannies. And I'm not going to talk about like, you don't got to answer this question, but like you get ready to come up for promotion. I don't know if you can say I do the bridge and theology podcast. And so um, those kinds of things, but, that's what actually that's what actually touches people. Yeah. So I know we're not proselytizing as academics, but I'm saying I don't know how the the guild knows how to recognize one type of scholar, and that's the scholar that they value, and mm-hmm. they don't they don't value like, interdisciplinary work. Mm-hmm. They don't value um, as often creative stuff, and so I think that there are a lot of people who are saying. And maybe the pandemic was clarifying in this. I can't spend my life doing stuff that doesn't feel like it matters outside of my little my little group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I say all of the time. I wrote a book. It was written in 2019. It was written by TNT Clark. I mean, it was published by TNT Clark, which is a good monograph series in my discipline, and it helped me get a job. Mm-hmm. I think I did two podcast interviews about that. Um, people, you know, nobody's know what. I don't think there's probably a question on y'all little list <laughs> about sharing of the son's inheritance. The people, the amount of people who care about inheritance law in relationship to Galatian messianism isn't a big number. And so it's not that that, that book doesn't matter. It's just, I think that all of the stuff that we do does matters. Yeah. But that that becomes um, um, more difficult for schools to adjudicate. And so it's just simpler to say, do they have two or three OUP books and and call it a day? Yeah, you know, I was having this conversation because I'm currently working towards a book proposal with a, a scientist, and we're we're working on um, writing something accessible. Um, and we were talking about how does this count? 
Um, like to what degree does it count? And we're like, well, it counts in important ways because the conversations we want to have are meaningful, but we were really hoping we were like, okay, so is our institution going to count this? Like, um, and I, I have the gift of having now done all the promotion tenure stuff so I I can write what I want. Um, (laughs) but it was, it was, (laughs) it was interesting as we were talking about it because I wanted to make sure it counted for him. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and I was like, you know, the notion that something that is actually going to be, I think, hopefully very impactful um, yeah. to a lot of people who are, you know, working through a lot of these questions of like, how does science and faith work together? Um, you know, that, that is important, but I, I want the Academy to, to, to matter to the Academy too, to yeah, higher and education. I, and I, and I, think, I think that, um, it's very interesting that we, we this, this is the thing I was talking about. Once we get through all of the promotion stuff, but some of that stuff, I'm not, I'm not talking about you, um, Beth. I know you got tons of ideas and tons of energy, <laughs> but sometimes you're just tired. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so why is it that they can work? And, and let's not even talk about this. You graduate. Sorry. No one with you, about you graduate. You've been two or three years usually on the job market, trying to find work. And then you get on, the, then you get a job, tenure track job. If you're, if, if you're blessed, maybe you do a year or two of visiting work and then you get a tenure track job. So it's 10 to 15 years. You're killing yourself. Okay. And then you can say now what I went to school for 10 years ago, it's been 10 years trying to get a steady job. It's been 20 years from when I had the idea or the mm-hmm. passion to be able to actualize it. Sometimes you're tired. Mm-hmm. And so, or sometimes you've, you've made so many compromises that you've even lost track of those things. So mm-hmm. that's, that's the tricky part. But I think if the pandemic, one of the things the pandemic did, it was a great reset of our priorities and people mm-hmm. are starting to ask these questions in a much more intentional way. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of kind of priorities, I know that one of the things that matters to you and this kind of shapes our second part of our show is, is <coughs> church and our yeah. Christian life. Um, and I wanted to to ask a little bit about the journey you've had with different Christian traditions and across your life. And um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about what church has meant to you across your life and where you've landed now. Because I know where you started and where you landed now are kind of somewhat different places, but I just I mean, love to hear that. If I could tell you where, I, I mean, I, I've landed, it, I've landed um, at God is good all the time. And <laughs> <laughs> all the time, God is good. Um, and obviously, like, you know, Christian, I'm in church on Sundays and all those other things. But I feel like I I am still trying to bring all of those things together, mm-hmm. which is why people say, you know, you write a book reading while black, and then you write a book about Lent. That shows you like the the um the the kind of expansiveness. I grew up with mm-hmm. the, I grew up in the black church, and like I said, um, for for in in the African American black Southern African American context, is the church is the central part of my life. And the church is a place where, you know, you you spiritually had an encounter with God and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But it also took you out into the community to engage in culture. So um, to be to me, to be Southern black and Christian, as I received it, is to have a strong faith in Jesus. And mm-hmm. because of that faith, it came about the suffering people of the world. Mm-hmm. And. One of the things that I would say is that as I've kind of gone on in in my own formal education in this going place outside of that community, I've been I've been introduced to the wider Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, um, things like the liturgy and the church seasons and the sacraments and the creeds, and those mm-hmm. things were in a part of the, my 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 context growing up. 
And I think that both of those things are important. Um, both the traditions that I received as a child and the tradition that the church, some of the things the churches have always done. And that makes me something of homeless because there aren't a lot of places that combine all of those things. Mm. So right now, um, I, 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 I am trying to, to reconcile Hmm. the black church of my youth and the liturgical um, aspects of Christianity that I find compelling. Hmm. And if you can figure out how to do that, send me an email after this. <laughs> I'll be, I'll be good. I think I'm trying to do the same. Uh, I grew up Pentecostal and then went to Presbyterian seminary, Yeah, interned at a, a Baptist church and Catholic um, PhD program. So it's all yeah, those it's like, things. It's all floating around. You in know. Your head. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, and, and you know, and I, and I tell people, and this is super nerdy stuff, the elements of like Catholic social teaching that touches mm-hmm. up the activism of the black church. And so like, I am, I feel like what I've experienced since I left my hometown has enriched rather than, um, stripped away from the foundation that I received there. Mm-hmm. Yes. It helps you to understand it more. Yeah. And and, more and I think, that, and, and I think that it, it helped me in ways that I didn't even perceive until I needed it mm-hmm. because it's just stuff that's normal for me. The people be tied themselves in existential knots for mm-hmm. like, do mm-hmm. I care about the poor? Or do I preach the gospel? I was like, well, we just did both. both. Yeah. So, <laughs> it ain't that complicated. So when people right. say you this and you that, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm no, I, I know what normal is because I've been normal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you can say all that you want that I'm some kind of radical leftist crazy Christian. I was like, well, no, like there's a whole community in Northwest Huntsville. You can go and visit. Right. You can find, you throw a rock, you hit all of us. And behind that, there's an entire <laughs> black church tradition. So I know exactly who I am. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so, so comfortable comfortable in um, my identity in Christ and the way that I was taught how to be a Christian. And I just know, I just know that that's healthy because <laughs> I can write about it in a way that it's like, I'm not trying to prove to y'all anything. I'm telling mm-hmm. you what I saw. Meaning my black is just like, this is how we did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I know, I know it's how we did it because I was there, Right. <laughs> I was in the congregation. I was in the community. I wasn't, I didn't go and discover myself. I was there. Um, And so um, one of the things that's been really interesting for me is for people who, who read that book and who come from that tradition and go, yeah, he, he captured something. Not in the Mm -hmm. sense that like I articulated something new. That was not the goal of the book. It was, it was to bring to articulation an atmosphere mm-hmm. um, that has a, a profound impact on me. And other people grew up in that kind of atmosphere that I hope they recognized it in the book. And so it's kind of like, I think I said in the book that it's a love letter to the black church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, um, if it's, if it's a love letter to the black church, then my Lent book is like, here's somebody else. Y'all should meet each other. Yeah. And, and yeah. get to know one another. Well, something else, like, I guess it kind of ties into this that I appreciate is that you offer hope and justice. And I think um, yeah. I always talk about marrying the heart, the head and the hand. So like yeah. having that unity in that um, 
And I think so much of the scholarship um, in the past has been around, as you were saying earlier, like trying to prove that we can do this. Um, yeah. And then you hear on the flip side a lot about Black suffering. Um, yeah. and it's almost like it's the totality of our identity and it's yeah. not. So I love that you talk about um, looking at hope. Um, yeah. So what does hope mean to you in light of all of the injustice? We, our current context of, I'm sure so many people are still on pins and needles at the end of this election yeah. cycle. Like, where do we go from here? So where do you find hope? I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that you say that I am a hopeful writer because I sometimes mm-hmm. feel like I'm melancholy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is like my, the, the, sorry, the, my, I'm thinking about the memoir. Like my life has not been one where like I had a series of good things to happen to me. It was actually pretty difficult. And my family life yeah. growing up is complicated. Mm-hmm. But it was precisely in that difficulty that God revealed himself as good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a yeah. nevertheless God is good, yeah. not God is good in absence of suffering. Yeah. And so what I've tried to do in my writing is not ignore the pain, but speak to mm-hmm. the pain with the word of hope. And so mm-hmm. I feel like I'm a melancholy but hopeful writer. That's what I feel like my like I think if I was like an RB singer, it'd always be like, she dumped me, but we're gonna be all right, or something. <laughs> That would be my energy. Like, you know, like the down bad, but I'm not giving up. I'm not at the bar mm-hmm. drinking through my problems. I'm like, I'm going to see another day to summarize again. And I guess for me, the hope that I always say to people is the way that I find hope is this sounds theological. It's the resurrection. Yeah. Because when I look at when I look at society, it's too variable. Mm-hmm. You know, one t- one week it, we're gonna we might get together and have a reconciliation and justice. The next moment feels like white supremacy is gonna burn America to the ground. Like you don't know. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Or yeah. you know you, you you have you have your your some friends of mine who are so damaged by racism they made the equal and opposite um, mistake of a, a shifting towards kind of a, a an antagonistic black nationalism mm-hmm. uh, that makes black people exceptional and their enemies white people all bad. Mm-hmm. Now that's what I, that's the equal that's the equal that's the opposite error, right? Mm-hmm. You will correct yeah. the mistake by this becoming like the thing that you oppose. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I I I see those things, and if I just analyze those things. Mm-hmm. then I would probably be depressed, but I believe that Christ was risen, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you look at if you look at Rome, I'm going to sound like a pastor now, on Good Friday, and then you looked at Rome on Easter Sunday, Rome looked the same, but it was a different world. Yeah. And 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 the resurrection shifted the um hermeneutical posture. Mm-hmm. of the early church and i try yeah. to allow that shift to occur in me consistently in my writing yeah yeah it's so powerful it's one of the things you know i often i teach a lot of classes like i teach a class on suffering and hope i teach a class on, on biblical justice and a lot of what i talk about is it hope is not pretending that suffering doesn't exist or injustice yeah. doesn't exist that is not hope that's empty actually acknowledging that there is darkness and that there is death and that there is violence and injustice and yet Christ resurrected 
And yet there is, there is a transforming power of hope, you know, that those things are both true, that the cross and the resurrection are both true. Um, as you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's like, if you're only walking around trying to give people some false sense of, um, let's just pretend that things are okay. That's not, that's not true hope. And one of the things I love about your writing and you just knowing you is that, that sense of like light in the darkness and that sense of that, that there is, that there's hope, not because you haven't experienced struggle, but because you have, and God has been with you. And that's just, I mean, I just find it so profound. So thank you for that, for giving that in your writing and just in your person. Thank you. You're being too nice to me, Beth. So our next question, I know we've talked a little bit about the children's book um, and just your writing process and writing towards the children or writing for children. Um, I want to look at questions of legacy and like passing down the faith. And I know that you just don't do that with children, but also with your work with the Jude 3 Project and how you all go to universities and colleges. Um, So back to the hope (laughs) question, where do you see hope? And like in that generation, um, and then how do you like, I guess, does it inspire you also how you see how they're encountering God in light of all of the darkness around and um, how does that inform your scholarship and who you are? I think that um, I, oh, you have all like younger kids or like college students? That was a. Oh, you can answer both. It was both. I, I would say, I, I would say that um, there are people like, I think it's someone like Darina Williams. She had a book, she had a book coming out. She does a lot of kids' books. Um, and I think that what encourages me is that there's a generation of Black writers, mm-hmm. Christian writers who are intentionally molding an affirmation that God made us Black on purpose mm-hmm. with, like, strong affirmations of Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And so when I was a kid, it was all, you know, like, blonde, blue-eyed Jesus. Mm-hmm. And our parents would, like, give us those books and then tell us the Black part on the side. Or mm-hmm. you can find a Black book with, like, no Jesus in it. Mm-hmm. And I would say that um, there are people who are who are merging or who are bringing together in one space, mm-hmm. both an affirmation of their their hate, their faith, and their heritage. Mm-hmm. And seeing how those things, the legacy of Black faith is important. So it's almost like parents are much more cognizant of that. Mm-hmm. Um, than, and, and that gives me some encouragement. I would say um, for the college students, what I'm a little bit... Um, encouraged is 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 a complicated word i can say i feel passionate about reaching a younger generation maybe i'll put it this way um they are more honest about the church's problems than we were mm-hmm. i think um my generation is kind of that's just how we do church and um we just kind of ignored it for mm-hmm. the sake of the stuff that we saw were positive and so I think that the current generation is has done a, a a better job of kind of bringing to to the fore those kinds of inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder. Um, we are trained 
through the way that our society has functioned on social media and all of these other things to be corrective of others mm. and to see how institutions and individuals like perpetuate oppression. Mm-hmm. But I wonder um, how reflective we always are. Like, like how are we looking at our own kind of participation in those things? And do we embrace the fact that there that there is someone outside of us who critiques us? Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, not me, but God. Um, mm-hmm. and, and finding a way to balance um, that fervency of reform uh, with um, I think, I think, I think, I think, uh, Lecrae had a, a line in one of his recent songs. It says, "Only God could judge me, but He will." Mm, um, that and, part, and that's and, and that's not. I'm not talking about like fear. I'm talking right. about recognizing that part of the journey of becoming an adult is not reaching inside of yourself and pulling out an identity that you can constru- construct, but that uh, identity and a meaning is a gift that God gives to His people. Mm-hmm. And, and trying to always find that is something that I, every generation has things they have to, to, to worry about. I want to make mm-hmm. sure I, I would hope that my writing encourages students and younger people to continue to find their identity and not find their identity in a way that erases people, but just find find Christ running ahead of you and showing you the way that you should go. Right. Yeah. You know, our conversation, we've we've kind of covered a lot of different parts of your life. Um and one of the things we like to ask all the people we interview is, you know, what nourishes your own Christian life? Um, I look at you, you know, you are a professor, a father, a husband, a writer, a speaker. I could probably keep going for a while of all the different things you do. You were a very busy man. And so, you know, what what nourishes you? Um, I had a student who came into my office today. Um, and, um, she, she doesn't take my class. She may even listen to this podcast, but she just walked out. So it was, she, I won't say her name, but she lives in, she, she grew up in the middle of, she was in the middle of nowhere in Texas, um, and going through her own kind of spiritual journey. <laughs> and she said that she read my book and it was helpful to her. And so for me, there's this thing on academia. I don't know how many academics listen to this podcast, but they have this thing that I think you have to pay for it. It's a citation rank. And it tells you how often people cite your work. I've never paid for that. I have no idea how often anybody has cited my work um, in the academy. But when I hear a pastor say, "I, I, I quoted you in my sermon, it isn't because like I am vainly um, like I like to hear my have my name said in some place. It's just that someone read what I wrote, found it spiritually beneficial to them and gave it to other people. It's what I wanted. And so I guess and not just the books, but in the articles. And so I guess it makes me feel encouraged when my work encourages other people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and so that's something that I would say. And it is true that like it's almost sometimes as a writer, it's drudgery. But sometimes you get in your pocket, and I like playing with words. Um, <laughs> and sometimes just writing a really good sentence that in, that includes 
my own um, little echoes and 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 allusions to things that only I know for people who read are going to get. It gets me so much joy. <laughs> there's this um, there's this line in uh, my memoir. Interesting. I'm saying I got these edits back, and I was talking about my story, mm-hmm. and um, and I'm applying for these. Um, these scholarships at, um, at at school to get into college. And I'll talk about telling the sob story that people, you know, need to hear to let you in. And mm-hmm. then I said, they wanted to know that they have, have plucked a brand from the burning. Mm-hmm. Now, if anybody's Methodist knows that's a, that's an oblique allusion to <laughs> John Wesley's statement about his conversion. Right. Yeah. But it, it, and it's kind of like, and my editor's like, why did you put that in there? Um, and I said, well, no, no, no. It's like John Wesley, when he gets saved, he said, it's this, and it's from Jeremiah. And so like all of these things. So like, I find that stuff really funny. There's a, there's mm-hmm. another line where I said, they invited me to answer the ever pressing question of the color line. Mm-hmm. You know that that's W.E.B. Du Bois, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was in my little nerdy feelings because I had John Wesley and W.E.B. Du Bois and like within the same, and they don't hang out together very much. Um, <laughs> last, sorry, this is not bragging. You said what gives me no. I just no, published it's you life. the um the um I, I published a piece on um on uh Halloween. I mean, in um, All Saints Day for um the New York Times, and in it, I got to talk about um Martin Luther King, um Frederick Douglass, and Saint Teresa the Little Flower. Mm-hmm. And I said. I just like doing that kind of stuff. Most people, you know, like, in other words, like, it's not that it, it, I felt like myself because not too many people know both have been marked by those people. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. when I'm able to give the entirety of who I am in, and I feel like I'm in a good place as a writer mm-hmm. and, and, and I'm not, I'm not a planner writer. I'm a like mood writer. So mm. I enjoy writing stuff and I don't even know what's going to come until it comes. So maybe mm-hmm. I'll tell you the thing that gives me joy is um, the process of writing when I have time to do it and it's not all stressful and I'm in that pocket. Yeah. And when mm-hmm. seeing people benefit from it gives me real joy. And of course, right now my dog is is everything. Scotty, shout out to Scotty. <laughs> Um, and my kids are okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> my kid, my kid, my kid, my kids are amazing. It's like I have them. Um, it's like God is being merciful to me. I got a 14 year old who's now clamped up who doesn't want to tell me anything. And you know, he's a he's a stone wall, but every now and then you kind of break it through. And um, sorry. And so then I have a six-year-old who's just all the feelings. I love you, Dad. So <laughs> He's helping me process emotionally. My 14-year-old won't tell me anything. And so, um, and, you know, I got between, so like 14, 12, 8, and 6. And so, uh, I'm sorry, I'll say one more random story I'm talking about my family. And it's in the afternoon and and my verbose. I went and spoke at my son's, my son's um, high school. And um, before I spoke, they had him introduce me. And he had to read a little prayer and then introduce, introduce me. Huh. And the prayer just got to me. It's just like such a great job. Mm-hmm. And then the funny part about it, he's supposed to do the bio. This is a 14 year old never listened to you. He got the details in the bio wrong, which is fine. <laughs> <laughs> but then he goes, after getting some, garbling some of the details in my bio, 
He goes, but most importantly, my father. Um, and I was like, that's actually it. He got the part of the Bible yes. that matters, right? He got <laughs> yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm, that's what matters to him. He doesn't care about any of the other stuff that I do. I'm his father. Mm-hmm. And so, um, sometimes I just get joy from like watching my kids, um, struggle their way towards whatever this God has made them to be, which is also terrifying, um, because you're not in control of it, but it also yeah. makes me happy when, when they're on the right track. Oh man. Yeah. I hear that. My daughter is doing her 16th birthday party this weekend. And so that, that dynamic is absolutely there. And, you know, it's interesting that like we're ending up in that as we transition to section three, because section three is all marginalia, the things that we kind of do some fun, almost silly yeah. questions. Um, but I think it connects to this broader piece of our lives are not just, not just um, an academic lecture we're giving. Um, yeah. And it's not just informed by that, but like all of who we are, right? So, a uh, show or movie you're in really into right now, and what do you love about it? Man, um, unfortunately, I am like sadly watching a lot of basketball, mm. and I'm a LeBron James fan, and my heart breaks so we never win. So, I think I've watched maybe eight out of the ten games, and we we're two and nine. So I'm into like hate watching LeBron James get old in front of me and break my heart. What, what they did to him without giving him a team is, is pretty bad. Um, I'm hoping to go see um, um, Black Panther tomorrow with my two oldest. So I can't speak on it, but it's out today or yesterday. And I'm going to go see that. But I'm actually kind of behind on television shows. Um, I've been pretty busy lately. Maybe even writing oh, some books. The or great, the great. I will tell you something. The Great British Bake Off. <gasps> oh man, I've never seen so much drama with like with, with like so low stakes. I'd be sweating <laughs> listen, watching that stuff. Like when you get somebody your food, other people say you. They tell you to make something, and then you got to go and take them the food, and then they bring those when it goes poorly. They bring those little struggle cakes, and I'm just oh, yeah. like, there's something about. Watching someone be critiqued, yeah, it just like I just like I just, it's so intense. You and I talked. Please don't let the crust be um soggy bottom. Oh no, <laughs> no soggy bottom. You and I talked about this one day because we were talking. Yeah. You were you never like on a way to lunch somewhere, yeah. and we were talking about about the like academy and the British yeah. Bake Off <laughs> and like and the stress <laughs> of like, the, like our defense or something like that, yeah. and like almost like being worried about a soggy bottom. Yeah. And, <laughs> so, it is so. Yeah. I'm mean, like what I'm saying is I have seen like I'm like. Oh no, they forgot to put the bacon powder. <laughs> oh man. It's just like and like and like the guy, oh man, it's like sorry, this you have to watch the 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 amount of emotional satisfaction when like the guy just gives him the handshake. Like oh, you did man. it. That's <laughs> right. When it's Holly, you get a Hollywood handshake. It's like yeah. it's like the world, it's like it's the like sunlight. the world. So oh, oh man. <laughs> my wife, my wife made um, she made um uh, what do you call it? Quiche the other day. And I didn't even know what a soggy bottom was. I just eat the quiche. Now I'm looking like soggy bottom. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> like I've eaten quiche that way my whole life. I didn't even know they're supposed to be done. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Yeah. That, that That's still, I don't know if that counts. Yeah, that's, that's where I am. 
That was good. If you could describe yourself in three words, what would they be? Um, I will say one person said how they thought their spouse or their kids would describe them and that helped them like get some words. No, I I guess what I would say is I would describe myself as I'll just use. I don't even know. I don't know who I am. Confused, confused. Um, I'll put it here. It goes. Not one thing. That's what I would say. Not one thing. Oh, nice, nice. That's that's, a, that's like a lot of words in a small amount of words. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are you reading? Like, what have you been reading recently that's been that's been having an impact on you? Oh man. Um, be honest, I've been doing so much writing recently that I haven't had a lot of chance to do um, much reading mm-hmm. between lecture prep and um, I'm trying to think of this a book. Actually, I would say like, and I said this before, the writings of um, like Christians in the um, abolitionist, black abolitionists in the 1860s mm. and 1870s. Like mm. black um, um, slave narratives and their conversions, mm-hmm. those stories, those have been have been inspiring to me. Powerful, that's awesome. But not as much as I would like. Okay, so if you could have a meal with three people, dead or alive, other than Jesus and Paul, who you've okay. never spoken to but wish you had, who would you choose? Martin Luther King is one. Mm-hmm. Frederick Douglass is two. Hmm. Am I gonna go Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Fannie Lou Hamer? One of those. Mm, one yeah. Of those two. yeah, Fannie. Serena Williams, Serena Lee. Yeah. So I, I I know it's King and Fred, and then the third one is depends on who's busy, who's not busy. <laughs> you wouldn't want to take Harriet Tubman away from important work. <laughs> yeah, if Harriet's busy doing stuff, I don't want to bother Harriet. <laughs> but if you're going to go modern I would probably go sorry I'm going to cheat because I don't got to follow the rules these are fake rules I would do um, Denzel um, Barack Obama and, and Viola Davis mm. that would be a very yeah. interesting conversation yes um, I know you traveled quite a bit with your wife um, but if you could win an all ex- inclusive trip anywhere in the world um, and you had time and space to go there. Where would you go? Um, do, are my kids with me or not? That's up to you. <laughs> okay, if I got time and space, I can finally have the kids not come. So um, <laughs> me and my wife, I would like to go possibly to Ghana or the motherland. Mm. And then I would I, I've always liked um the Cotswolds and this tells you I'm not one thing. I would probably mm-hmm. go from Ghana over to the Cotswolds in, in England and visit some mm-hmm. of the old churches and architecture there. Mm-hmm. So I would I would I, 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 I don't know how I'm gonna fund all of that, and that's a lot of flying back and forth, but that's how I would do it. The great places. Well, Esau, it's really been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you again for making time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. I had a good time. Sorry that I didn't follow all of your rule questions. Your question. Oh, no, no. We like 
Happy birthday. You did great. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, hey, have a happy Friday and happy Thanksgiving, but it's going to be after Thanksgiving for them. Happy Black History Month. Happy Martin Luther King Day. I'm going to get any holiday. Happy New Year's. Whatever holiday it is, happy that for you. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, we'd also like you to thank you, the listener, for joining us today. Um, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you'd like to help us, you can share the podcast with others, subscribe on your podcast player. You can check out more on bridgingtheology.com or on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram feeds at Bridging Theology.